Chapter 4 of Visions and Revisions by John Cooper Powis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. El Greco. The emerging of a great genius into long retarded preeminence is always attended by certain critical misunderstandings. To a cynical observer on the lookout for characteristic temperamental lapses, two recent interpretations of El Greco may be especially commended. I mean, The Secret of Toledo by Maurice Barre, and an article in the Contemporary of April 1914 by Mr. Aubrey Bell. Barre, Frenchman of Frenchmen, sets off with captivating and plausible logic to generalize into reasonable harmlessness this formidable madman. He interprets Toledo, appreciates Spain, and patronizes Domenico Theotocopoulos. The Secret of Toledo is a charming book, with illuminating passages, but it is too logical, too plausible, too full of the precocity of dainty generalization to reach the dark and arbitrary soul either of Spain or of Spain's great painter. Mr. Bell, on the contrary, far from turning El Greco into an Epicurean cult, drags him with a somewhat heavy hand before the footlights of English idealism. He makes of him an excuse for disparaging Valique, and launches into a discourse upon the higher reality and the inner truth which leaves one with a very dreary feeling, and by some ponderous application of spiritual ropes and pulleys, seeks to jerk into empty space all that is most personal and arresting in the artist. If it is insulting to the ghostly Toledoan to smooth him out into picturesque harmony with Castilian dances, Gothic cloisters and Moorish songs, it is still worse to transform him into a rampant idealist of the conventional kind. He belongs neither to the aesthetes nor to the idealists. He belongs to every individual soul whose taste is sufficiently purged, sufficiently perverse, and sufficiently passionate to enter the enchanted circle of his tyrannical spell. When in that dark Toledo church one presses one's face against the iron bars that separate one from the burial of Count Orgaz, it is neither as a dilettante nor an idealist that one holds one's breath. Those youthful pontifical saints, so richly arrayed, offering with slender royal hands that beautiful body to the dust. Is their mysterious gesture only the rhythm of the secret of death? Those chastened and winnowed spectators, with their withdrawn, remote detachment, not sadness, are they the initiated sentinels of the house of corruption? At what figured symbol points the epicene child? Sumptuous is the raiment of the dead, and the droop of his limbs has a regal finality. But look up, stark naked, and in the abandoned weakness, the liberated soul shudders itself into the presence of God. The old Greco house and museum in Toledo contains amazing things. Every one of those apostles, 
that gaze out from the wall upon our casual devotion has his own furtive madness his own impossible dream the saint john is a thing one can never forget el greco has painted his hair as if it were literally live flame and the exotic tints of his flesh have an emphasis laid upon them that makes one think of the texture of certain wood orchids how irrelevant seem Monsieur Boret's watercolour sketches of prancing moors and learned Jews and picturesque Visigoths. As soon as one gets a direct glimpse into these unique perversions. And why cannot one go a step with this dreamer of dreams without dragging in the higher reality? To regard work as mad and beautiful as this as anything but individual imagination is to insult the mystery of personality. El Greco recreates the world in pure, lonely, fantastic arbitrariness. His art does not present the secret truth of the universe or the everlasting movement. It represents the humour of El Greco. Every artist mesmerises us into his personal vision a traveller drinking wine in one of those cafes in the crowded Zucadova. His head full of these amazing fantasies might well let the greater fantasy of the world slip by, a dream within a dream. With El Greco for a companion, the gaunt waiter at the table takes the form of some incarcerated Don Quixote, and the beggar at the window appears like gods in disguise. This great painter like the Russian Dostoevsky, has a mania for abandoned weakness. The nearer to God his heroic degenerates get, the more feverishly enfeebled becomes their human will. Their very faces, with those retreating chins, retroussé noses, loose lips, quivering nostrils, and sloping brows, seem to express the abandonment of all human resolution or restraint in the presence of the beatific vision. Like the creatures of Dostoevsky, they seem to plunge into the ocean of the foolishness of God, as much wiser than the wisdom of men, as divers plunge into a bath. There is not much attempt among these ecstatics to hold on to the dignity of their reason or the reticence of their self-respect. Naked they fling themselves into the arms of nothingness. This passionate movement of life, of which Mr. Bell, quoting Pater's famous quotation from Heraclitus, makes so much, is, after all, only the rush of the wind through the garments of the world refuter as he plunges into eternity. Like St. John of the Cross, El Greco's visionaries, pass from the night of reason to the night of senses, from the night of senses to the night of the soul. And if this final night is nothing less than God himself, the divine submersion does not bring back any mortal daylight. Domenico's portraits have a character somewhat different from his vision. Here into these elongated bearded hermits, into these grave intellectual maniacs, whose look is like the look of workers in some unlit mine. He puts what he knows and feels of his own identity. They are diverse masks and mirrors, these portraits. 
surfaces of deep water in various lonely valleys but from the depths of them rises up the shadow of the same lost soul and they are all ruffled by the breath of the same midnight the crucifixion in the prado and that other which by some freak of providence has found its way to philadelphia have backgrounds which carry our imagination very far in this primordial ice with its livid steel-blue shadows the stuff out of which the gods made other planets than ours dead planets without either sun or star are these the sheer precipices of chaos against which the redeemer hangs or the frozen edges of the grave of all life el greco's magnificent contempt for material truth is a lesson to all artists we are reminded of william blake and aubrey beardsley he seems to regard the human frame as so much soft clay upon which he can trace his ecstatic hieroglyphs in defiance both of anatomy and nature el greco is the true precursor of our present-day matists and futurists he as they has the courage to strip his imagination of all mechanical restrictions and let it go free to mould the world at its fancy what stray visited to madrid would guess the vastness of the intellectual sensation awaiting him in that quiet rose-coloured building as you enter the museum and pass those magnificent titians crowded so close together large and mellow spaces from a more opulent world than ours greener branches bluer skies and a more luminous air a world through which naturally and at ease the divine christ may move grand majestic health-giving a veritable god a world from whose grapes the blood of satyrs may be quickened from whose corn the hearts of heroes may be made strong and come bolt upon el greco's glacial northern lights you feel that no fixed objective truth and no traditional ideal has a right to put boundaries to the imagination of man not less striking than any of these is the extraordinary portrait of leroy ferdinand in the great gallery of the louvre the artist has painted the king as one grown weary of his difference from other men his moon-white armour and silver crown show like the ornaments of the dead misty and wavering the long shadows upon the high strange brow seem thrown there by the passing of all mortal illusions phantom-like in his gleaming ornaments a king of lost atlantis he waits the hour of his release and not only is he the king of shadows he is also the king of players the player king el greco has painted him holding two sceptres one of which resembling a fool's bauble is tipped with the image of a naked hand a dead false hand symbol of the illusion of power the very crown he wears shimmering and unnaturally heavy is like the crown a child might have made in play out of shells and seaweed the disenchanted irony upon the face of this figure that look as of one who as plato would have us do with kings 
has been dragged back from contemplation to the vulgarity of ruling men, has been deliberately blent by a most delicate art with a queer sort of fantastic whimsicality. Le Roy Ferdinand might almost be an enlarged reproduction of some little girl's dolking, dressed up in silver tinsel and left out of doors by mistake some rainy evening. Something about him, one fancies, would make an English child think of the white knight and Alice through the looking-glass. So helpless and simple he looks, this poor revenant, propped up by youthful imagination, and with the dew of night upon his armour. You may leave these pictures far behind you as you recross the channel, but you can never quite forget El Greco. In the dreams of night, the people of his queer realm will return and surround you, ebbing and flowing. These passionate shadows stretching out vain arms after the infinite and crying aloud for the rest they cannot win. Yes, in the land of dreams we know him, this proud despiser of earth. From our safe inland retreat we watch the passing of his dance of death, and we know that what they seek, these wanderers upon the wind, is not our ideal, nor our real, nor our earth or our heaven, but a strange, fairy-like nirvana, where, around the pools of nothingness, the children of twilight gamble and play. The suggestive power of genius plays us, indeed, strange tricks. I have sometimes fancied that the famished craving in the eyes and nostrils of El Greco's saints was a queer survival of that tragic look which that earlier Greek, Scopus the sculptor, took such pains to throw upon the eyelids of his half-human amphibians. It might even seem to us, dreaming over these pictures, as the gusts of an English autumn blow the fir branches against the window, as though all that weird population of Tomonica's brains were tossing their wild white arms out there, and emitting thin bat-like cries under the drifting moon. The moon, one must admit that at least, rather than the sun, was ever the mistress of El Greco's genius. He will come more and more to represent for us those vague, uneasy feelings that certain inanimate and elemental objects have the power of rousing. It is of him that one must think when this or that rock-chasm cries aloud for its demon, or this or that deserted roadway mutters of its unreturning dead. There will always be certain great artists, and they are the most original of all who refuse to submit to any of our logical categories, whether scientific or ideal. To give oneself up to them is to be led by the hand into the country of pure imagination, into the ultima thule of impossible dreams. Like Edgar Allan Poe, this great painter can make splendid use of the human probabilities of religion and science. But it's none of these things that one finally thinks, as one comes to follow him, but of things more subtle, more remote, more translunar, and far more imaginative. One may walk the streets of Toledo to seek the impress of El Greco's going and coming, 
but the soul of Domenico Theotokopoulos is not there. It is with Faust in the cave of the abysmal mothers. End of chapter 4